that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Our Father in heaven, fill us tonight with truth from your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would direct our attention to what you have revealed, that you would help us to set aside the cares and distractions of this day and to sit even as we find in the Gospels, Martha's sister Mary does at the feet of Jesus to receive from him. Your servant is weak, but your spirit is strong. Lord, give us what you desire, for we ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This country has received something extraordinary, anomalous in comparison to places throughout history, in that we have gone a long, long time without large-scale war on our soil. And that can make a people indifferent to the realities of war. And it's easier to hawk for war, I imagine, than when you have experienced it firsthand. We have not experienced war here on our soil in a long, long time. And so it's hard to imagine how you might act differently, how you might think differently, how you might feel differently if we were threatened immediately here in Phoenix. If the specter of war was so close that you thought today, today could be a day of dodging bullets, of hiding how would your life be affected? We sometimes talk about wartime versus peacetime mentalities and how entire cultures adopt a different way of living when they recognize the imminent danger of war. And so whether that's to protect themselves immediately or for the sake of the war effort, they make all of these adjustments to life. Now, how does that pertain to what's before us tonight? Here's a people going straight from peacetime right into wartime. 
But the reality is they had always had those enemies, the Philistines. We're going to see that was not a surprise that they were now under attack. And even so, for the Christian, we are always in wartime. There is not peacetime for the Christian as relates to the enmity that the world and the flesh and the devil have towards you. There has never been a day of your Christian life that you are not being attacked, assailed, ground down in some way. There are certainly times when we are so distracted that we are ignorant to it. But there is no such thing as peacetime in this life for the Christian. Hear what it says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The apostolic vision of the Christian life is one where strongholds are being demolished. There's a sledgehammer in the hand of the bride of Christ. It's not all peace and handshakes and hugs. We love the people, but we are very much at war with what is false and with what is immoral and with what opposes the Lord. Ephesians 4, verse 12. Ephesians 4, 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In this sense, we cannot gain the ground that we desire as the church apart from heart transformation, apart from spiritual warfare, God working against powers that are invisible to us, as well as those powers that just are in the world but are subject to evil. Now, this is why 2 Samuel chapter 5 is very valuable. 2 Samuel chapter 5 gives us a story of a man who was chosen by God in many respects to prefigure Jesus Christ in the way that he rules over his flock, the church. And here we gain wisdom for the way that we are to anticipate and how we are to respond to the opposition that you inevitably do face. How do you anticipate it? How do you respond to it? And these are the things that we're basically going to be considering tonight. Now, as we do so, it's going to be under three main divisions. I'll announce each of them again as we come to them. But if you are the note-taking sort, then tonight you get some note-taking words. I don't always do this, but it may help you. The first word is brace. The second is seek. And the third is rouse. Brace, seek, and rouse. And that's because first in this passage, we see that we have to brace for attack. And what does that look like? We're going to see. And then secondly, you seek heavenly help. And third, you rouse yourself to action. All of these things are contained in this passage, but we need to set them in light of the new covenant. Now, first, God reminds you, brace for attack. And I want you to recall something about the context in which David was living. Their enemies, the Philistines, had been their enemies for hundreds of years at this point. There had been countless battles and skirmishes fought. It was no new thing. This is not a surprise in the big sense. It was more a matter of when, not if. But in the immediate 15 years leading up to this point, the Philistines were at the throat of Israel when Saul was the undisputed king. And then when the tribes of Israel fell into fighting among one another, the Philistines were more than happy to play the tribes off one another. 
and to ally with David. And I don't think for a moment it's because they really actually liked David. It's the whole, the friend of my, I can never even remember. You know the, the saying. But here they are content to split the people against one another. And that is a form of warfare. And that exists to this day. That governments, when they want to wear down their foes, will find ways to divide the population against one another. And the same is true in the church. When congregations or when families or when the church in a broader region are highly divided, the attack of the enemy may not be as overt because it's working fine. And we have to be aware of that. What we might think of just as friction in the home or what we might think of as friction in the church is very much being moved by something which is invisible, real, and dangerous. The Bible does not explain in great detail as we might want the nature of our enemy, the devil. It's not our business, and I think we'd be overwhelmed if we knew more than we do. Instead, he presents us the power of Christ, and he warns us of the reality of the enemy. However, immediately after David is crowned, and they're practically still cleaning up all the mess from the celebrations, what then happens? In the text, we read it like this, verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And then verse 18, now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. The Philistines were not foolish in the worldly sense. They recognized this is now a, an extreme threat to them. Because now all the tribes are united. And it will come to pass later in the story. David succeeds, and then especially Solomon, in basically wiping the Philistines from significant influence for the rest of the story. And so, of course, they come to attack. And where is this Valley of Rephaim? It's, it's a steep canyon just a half mile from Jerusalem. Imagine that. All the Philistines show up. They're all here now. They are ready to fight. And even so... Our enemy, we can expect, will oppose us most vehemently when there is unity under Christ among the people of God. Is your family currently particularly united? Perhaps not, but if it is, be alert. Just because things are coming together in your relationships does not mean it's just going to go easier from here on out. And I believe the same is true for our church at this time. Not only as a congregation, though I do believe that we are especially blessed in the degree of unity that is increasing, both among the people and in the leadership here for vision, for fellowship, for camaraderie. We are in a good time. Don't let that be lost on you. But also for our relationship with other healthy churches throughout this valley. We are in a stage increasingly of trying to partner with like-minded churches to do more than we can do alone. Then brace yourself. I don't, I'm not telling you this is not prophetic. This is just principles from the scripture. The enemy, we should not underestimate, knows that this would be a great time to make things harder for us. I don't know what that would look like in particular. We could list out 40 different ways that could come to pass. But it does mean that God, who knows all things, should be the first one that we contact to say, Lord, please protect us. So we should anticipate greater resistance. 1 Peter 5.8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
looking for someone to devour. True individually, true at the level of the congregation, true in the sense of broader federative relationships as well. And then moreover, we should expect that if the enemy actually is rebuffed for a time, he'll be back. Verse 22, after the first victory, what happens? The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the Valley of Rephaim. Our enemy will not relent until our enemy is cast into the lake of fire. And if the enemy will not relent, neither can we. Every day we get up again and we say, it's a fighting day. I took hits yesterday. I write it off as a casualty. But today I'm getting up again and I will fight again. And the same is true for a church. If a, if a great scandal tears into a church, you have two choices, disband the whole thing or start repair, get back into it. And so we should not be surprised. Our enemy will be coming again. Now that brings us then to the second point here, the second main division. What do we do about it? In the first place, the second division, the spirit instructs us here, I believe, to seek our help from heaven. Seek our help from heaven. And look with me at verse 17. You're going to see the first thing David does when he hears the Philistines are coming. David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Scholars have different opinions about exactly what is being referred to there. Most of them believe that this is simply referencing wherever he was at the time, wherever they were celebrating or wherever he was conducting his kingly duties, he makes way for Jerusalem, which he wanted in the first place, remember, because it was almost impregnable. And so he goes to the stronghold. That's common sense. He doesn't just dive out into warfare without knowing what's going on. He is demonstrating good wisdom of the sort needed for the kind of battle God's people were in there but it has applications for ourselves as well. Before we rush into the fight, we take stock and we find our security where we may. Where are you secure? Where can you find footing and the armament to wage the kind of battle that we are brought to? Our deepest refuge is in the favor that God shows you to, shows to you in Jesus Christ. Hear what it says in Romans chapter 8. After listing off a litany of everything, all the kinds of persecution that can come upon believers, Paul says, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 16, and how many of the Psalms does, Jesus, uh, does David refer to the Lord as his refuge? David was a man who knew as a general how to pick out a good place to hide and how to fight from that position that was fortified. And he looks at the Lord and he says, that is my ultimate refuge. The same David who says, don't put your horse in trust it, uh, put your trust in horses, does not then want you to put your trust in physical structures. Even when he went into that stronghold, his hope is the Lord uses means and I'm using the best judgment I have, but my hope is in the Lord. And that's where we go first, whether that's in the immediate spiritual warfare of our individual life, whether that's our decisions as parents, whether that's in our relationships and work, 
Our first place to go is into this knowledge that we are favored in Christ unchangeably. And then second, recognize in this passage, this will be common sense to everyone older here, but children understand, take note of this. There isn't just one way to fight battle. There's not one strategy that fits every case. And it's beautifully illustrated in this passage. Compare the first and the second battle that David goes out to. The first time he asks the Lord, and it's amazing that David has direct access to God as his chief strategist. And this certainly prefigures the way that Christ is our ultimate, our fundamental king, has all the wisdom that he needs for us to go to war. But when David asks the Lord, the first time the Lord says, go out directly into battle, go head on. And the second time, David doesn't just say, well, that worked, let's do it again. The second time, God says, don't just go up, go around back, wait until you hear a noise like marching in the balsam trees. Whether that's however the Lord affects it, it's supernatural and providential. I believe that has to do with the Lord basically causing a strong wind at such a time that it spooks the army of the Philistines, and here he is able to rush in. The Lord, in several instances throughout the scripture, uses wind, by the way, in ways that I think should key in on the work of the Holy Spirit and the way that the Spirit comes with us into war. We'll come back to that. But now, how do we decide which way we are going to do battle? David, of course, has this direct access. Probably he's availing himself of the high priest who had something called the Urim and the Thummim. And a scholar who tells you exactly what that is is probably not telling the truth. We don't know for sure how the Lord gave insight through the high priest. We do know the point. Again, it was to prefigure the knowledge that Christ as our high priest has, that he has direct access to know the will of God. David inquires, and he gets that information. Yes, go up. What about you? You don't have that, and I do not advise you to flip coins. I do not advise you that when it comes to your harder decisions, you should go to lots before you have availed yourself, at least, of all pertinent information. The Lord has given to us the scripture. And we read in the New Testament that it's able to make us wise unto every good work. And so we search the scriptures to know where has the Lord spoken and what does the Lord desire of us. And then secondly, if there's anything that's doubtful, we bring that before a multitude of counselors. One of the reasons, by the way, I I believe strongly, and you should believe strongly in the reform structure of having a group of leaders called the elders or the consistory, that it's not just one person, what you would call Episcopalianism, where the leadership structure is one person at the top who has final say. Their judgment must succeed. Great when you're a prophet, and I am not. And so we have a multitude of counselors that we submit things to. And that's true as we weigh how do we bring our war against the enemy? How do we respond? Whether that's deciding how much of my time I give to reading the word versus prayer versus being with others in fellowship versus fulfilling my duties in work versus whether we're going to plant a church at this time or another time, build a school. There are so many ways to fight for you individually and for the church at large. And that means, if nothing else, if you don't take anything else away, go and inquire. Just like this morning, it starts at prayer. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. Psalm 18, David revels in the way that the Lord gives him insight. He says, 
The Lord teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Imagine that, David getting knocked back in battle and the right hand of the Lord comes right behind him and as it were, keeps him from losing his footing. But it's no less true that's the way that we are to anticipate our spiritual battle, that God is teaching you to fight. Trust him, ask him to do that for you. Seek our help from the Lord. Now, before we move to the third and final point here, what a relief must it have been for David to hear the words, yes, I shall give them into your hand. Isn't that what at times you want as relates to the great challenges of your life? Maybe you are a person who's facing the question of, will my marriage break up or remain? Or maybe it's you want information on whether or not you're going to lose a job that you cannot imagine anything else, or a friendship that you wonder, will this person... And we wish that we could just hear the Lord. And I tell you as a pastor... The Bible does not promise you that in this life, for every instance, you will have the outcome that you hoped for or that he will tell you beforehand what it shall be. We fight immediately in in this life, often in a fog of war. We're not sure whether or not a year from now we're still going to struggle in the same way with particular sins. The Lord may not tell you ever. But... When he tells David, I will give the Philistines into your hand in verse 24, how much more should your thought go immediately to what the Father says to Christ? You shall sit upon the throne. The battle, the war shall be won, and it's in Christ. We can't take this passage and just make it about us, and it's only my fight. It's set within a much bigger picture here. In the story, you're not David. You and I, we're just those people who go out with David into the battle. But David has the assurance of victory. And so long as we are united with him, then you look beyond this life to trust God is working good through all of these things. And it's in that then, as we have sought heavenly help, that the Lord brings us to warfare and he calls us to be roused to that warfare. And this is our third and final division. The Holy Spirit is calling you tonight, rouse yourself for action. And I'm not saying that because... None of you have been roused in the past week. But again, that's the nature of war. It is just rousing after rousing until it's done. I've never been in battle. It's not even remotely comparable, so it's embarrassing to say. I've backpacked. Not impressive. And with our troop growing up, we did some long days, day after day, 15 I think the most we ever did in a day was 22 miles. That is a long way when you've got a pack. You're a kid and you're not highly motivated. You don't even wonder, why are we doing this? And you renew it first, why? But day four, why am I doing this? I heard this is awesome. Maybe other people like it more. If you have to rouse yourself for that, how much more warfare where you're putting yourself in harm's way? And that is the Christian life. Do not think that it will not cost you anything. The Lord has worked it providentially in such a way that often it's hidden from others the way that it's costing you. But make no mistake, if anyone knows Jesus Christ, our carpenter has fashioned a cross providentially for you as well. 
And it's administered by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it comes with goodness from the shop of the Lord. You will suffer. It will cost you something. And you have to rouse yourself to go into it again. And the Lord, through these things, has provided a great theater, as Calvin said. A great theater on which we display the attributes and the virtues and the graces of God. How else would we demonstrate to the world the patience of Jesus Christ if we weren't often being tried in our patience? Likewise, our meekness. And so we have to rouse ourselves. Divine assurance that Christ wins in the end is not an excuse not to rouse yourself. In fact, it should put us to shame if we just sit on our hands knowing that Christ is in the battle for us and that others are fighting valiantly. In our story... They go out fighting, having been told by David, we're going to win. The Lord has promised. But still, in all likelihood, some of those people did die, or at least were injured. And even so, the Christian life, there will be pain. There will be, even in many places this day, I'm sure, martyrdom. Every Christian, then, must persevere in the fight. There is no expectation of participation in glory without it. Not at all. I want to be clear. I'll say that again. If you do not persevere in the fight, not simply in saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but if you don't persevere in the fight, there is no reasonable expectation of participating with Christ in glory. That's not because your suffering merits a thing. It's because the Holy Spirit's real. And everyone in whom he dwells, he works this kingdom mindset. I have to fight back. And I have to fight for Christ. If you don't have that, do you know him? If you want it, ask for it. It comes freely as it relates to your works. It'll cost you everything as it relates to your comfort. J.C. Ryle wrote this. In the face of this aggravated danger, we must never forget that the word of the living God changes not. Love not the world. Be not conformed to this world. The friendship of the world is enmity with God. These mighty sayings of God's statute book remain still unrepealed. The true Christian strives daily to obey them and proves the vitality of his religion by his obedience. It is as true now as it was 1,800 years ago that the man born of God, as it says in 1 John, will be a man who more or less resists and overcomes the world. So the Lord is calling you to rouse yourself for war. But he doesn't call you to do that in your own strength. He calls you to do it in the most beautiful way. Look with me at verse 24. See how God rouses David. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Now, you may not remember this, but this there's a literary callback here, which is very beautiful, that it would be a, a real loss if you didn't catch. If you turn back the clock in Israel's history, back before they had a king, and you recall what they were crying out for that got them into trouble? The problem wasn't simply that they wanted a king. Moses had been told by God that in due time, God would provide a king. 
The problem was in the kind of king they wanted and what they wanted him to do. And if you would go back and look at that in 1 Samuel, they say, give us a king like all the world who will go out before us to fight our battles. They want the king going out before, and it's in the king that victory is assured because he's like an Achilles or a Hercules. Give us that kind of man, and then we can win. David's glory is in his humility. He goes into the stronghold. He doesn't just run out onto the battlefield. He goes into the stronghold and asks, Lord, I'm not doing a thing with these people who belong to you until I have your assurance. Are you leading us or are you not? And the Lord says, when you hear the wind and the trees, the sound of the marching of my spirit going out to war, go, I'm with you. And I can only imagine I wasn't there, but as David is shooting arrows, as people are swinging swords, that arrows are being guided providentially, even by wind for all we know. And the Philistines are miraculously overcome, such that they leave behind their idols, these precious things. Even so, is it not more true that God has sent into the fray one who cannot be defeated, our Savior Christ, but that he comes not by himself. He comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember when Jesus is just about to ascend to glory in the book of Acts, he tells his disciples repeatedly, wait, wait, don't go right away. Wait until you receive the promised Holy Spirit. The word, by the way, part of why I'm bringing this together is the literal word in Hebrew for the spirit is simply the same word as wind. And when the Holy Spirit comes and acts upon the apostles, what does it come like? A great rushing wind. The Lord has integrated these pictures throughout the Bible theologically so that the weight of these pictures would give substance to the theological points. And so that you'd have this understanding, when you go out to war, what should rouse you is the knowledge, there is not a day you wake up that Christ was not awake before you battling. We often picture him as this peaceful intercessor, a high priest. That's part of the imagery of who Christ is. But he's also leading warfare. He will not rest in that sense until he will not sit down until his enemies have been made his footstool. And that's what helps us to go into the fight fresh, knowing I didn't start this and it does not depend upon me. So as we come to conclude, I would just want to ask you a few questions. First, are you alert? Are you aware that you are under attack and your friends and your family are too, that the unbelievers you meet are not just living in a, a secular uh, void spiritually, but there is a very real enemy who would desire to see them damned and desire to use them as great foes of the church. And will you not intercede for them? Will you not fight for them? Are you seeking guidance for how to do battle? I want to urge you, seek from the Lord, that truth. In the word, but from the Lord. Are you roused this evening for war? If not, I warn you, those who do not war have little confidence that they know him because we're called to this. And those who war very little, and there are those because First Thessalonians says that there are gonna be those who suffer loss. They pass through the flames, still smelling of smoke. They're saved, but they have little to show for it. I, I implore you, seek from God the things that last, that will matter, which is the honor that he bestows upon his people who are valiant for him. 
Finally, are you captivated by the conclusion, the fact that we will certainly win? May God use that in your life to drive you out this evening. Let's go before him. Let's ask him to bless us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for having called simple people, those who are called off-scourings by the world, to be, as it were, knights in your service. We thank you that you take that which is low, even children, and make them mighty instruments of your grace as they bear witness for you. Certainly there have been those adults who came to faith through the words and examples of their own children. You've used wives to break the spirits of adamant men. You've used employees as light in the lives of powerful employers. Our Father, we ask that you would use us for your glory, for your kingdom, in order that Christ would receive all honor. In his name we pray. Amen.